passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. We are uh, in 2 Samuel this morning. This is our, our final Sunday. In this book, we are in the final chapter. And this uh, final chapter, I think, is meant to give us the lasting lesson of the book. Or maybe to put it a, a different way, as we consider this passage, asking the question, <clears throat> what is the lasting impression that the author of this book wants us to have as we go away from it? Just like with the rest of the Bible, the story of First and Second Samuel is historical, but it's not just historical. It's written with a purpose. So when we come to the end of this book, it's meant to leave us with this gut impression, not just of David and Israel 3,000 years ago, even though that's good and that's true, but it's also supposed to say something about life today. And so as we look at our passage this morning, I just want you to have at the back of your mind, how would I sum up the impression of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel through the lens of chapter 24? Now, if you jump into 24, 2 Samuel chapter 24, the, the content of this story might surprise us as the final story of the book of 2 Samuel. There's no happily ever after written here. There's no summary of David's reign, or at least in the proper sense of what we would expect. And, and we're not told of David's death, or we're not given a eulogy about David. Instead, we're told a story that comes at some point in David's reign, and it's a story about David's sin, it's a story about God's judgment, but ultimately it's a story about David's cry out for mercy to his God. And so we have a, a unique passage here sitting at the end of the final position of this book, and, and rather than thinking, man, the author of First and Second Samuel uh, really could have used a, a better editor, we should be thinking, you know what, this is a little odd to me. And it's probably because the Bible is making a specific point, so what is it? And that's another way of saying what we talked about with this lasting impression from a few moments ago. Our story in 2 Samuel chapter 24 breaks into three interactions between David and other people. So let's go ahead and look at each interaction in turn as we work our way through this passage, considering the lasting impression of David and of his reign, as well as what we can learn about our own lives this morning as well. Would you pray with me as we approach God's word? Father, we do rejoice at your word and how you speak to your people through it. We are in absolute awe that these words are not just historical, not just telling the events from thousands of years ago, but how these events teach us timeless truths about your character, about your purposes, about your plans to rescue humanity. And so, God, we ask that as we open your word this morning, you would do just that, that you would teach us, that you would reveal to us who you are and how you are at work for the good of your people. And we ultimately ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the first interaction of this passage is found in verses 1 through 9. It's an interaction between David and his army commander, Joab. But before we get to their interaction, we actually are given a vitally important and probably perplexing behind-the-scenes look in verse 1. That's what's taking place here when the Bible says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, being God, incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel. Now, there are a number of parts of that verse that are worth commenting on. First, the word again reminds us that this is not the first time that God has been stirred into action against his people for their disobedience. We actually saw that just a couple of chapters ago in 2 Samuel chapter 21, a parallel passage, if you will. Israel is afflicted by God due to the sin of their king, King Saul. And now here, we're not told the specific reason why God is upset with Israel, and in one sense, it really doesn't matter. Thematically, as we've been following the story of 2 Samuel, we've just gotten done with a number of passages, chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Those chapters where we are told of Israel's persistent rejection of David. David, of course, is the Lord's chosen king. And when they choose Absalom, and then when they choose Sheba instead, they're choosing something different than God's plan and God's king. And so maybe we could say that God's anger here is because of Israel's rejection of their king, and by extension, their rejection of God himself. Again, we don't know. The focus isn't on why, but the reality. God is angry with Israel because of their sin. Now, we've established that Israel has offended God in some way, and God is angry because of it, and and we're probably shocked by what comes next in that verse. And the Lord incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. In other words, the way that the passage tells us that God acts on his anger toward Israel is inciting David to take a census. And we're going to look at the the significance of the census here in a moment. So just put that off to the side. The way that the ESV translates this verse almost reads as though it is a command from God. That God intervenes and, and tells David, go number Israel and Judah. And it's important to recognize that, that that's not what's taking place. Uh, probably a better way to translate the end of this verse is to, to, to notice that this isn't something that is spoken by God to David, but instead is a summary of David's words to Joab which we will look at in just the next section, the next verse. It's not God commanding David to do this, but instead David commanding Joab to do this. And that matters because it's reminding us or it's revealing to us that first and foremost, God's anger with Israel over their sin is not something that David is aware of. You can actually see that in verse 17. David is not aware that God is angry with Israel. And second, we, we see that we, we don't, or David doesn't know that God is planning on using this census to accomplish his purposes. Now, why does that matter so much? Well, I think it's a crucial distinction because it shows us something that we've seen multiple times in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and really throughout the Bible. It's about God's sovereignty. The fact that God is completely and utterly in charge of all things. 
both the good and the bad. And what we see here is that God's sovereignty doesn't override human desires, but accomplishes his purposes through them. So when we go back to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is talking to his brothers after they have sold him into slavery. And over the course of events, God uses that to to accomplish unfathomably good purposes, preserving his people as well as a number of people across the globe. Joseph, talking to his brothers, says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph is saying that the brothers and their evil actions in selling Joseph into slavery was the means through which God accomplishes these unbelievably good purposes, sparing countless lives from starvation in a famine. Now, Joseph doesn't say, you really did God a solid by by selling me into slavery as a part of his plan. That was probably hard but good job. He doesn't say, I'm not mad at you because your hands were tied. You didn't want to do it, but God made you. That's not what he's saying here. He's acknowledging the the desires of his brothers. He's saying, you meant evil against me. There's an evil desire from his brothers. But he's also simultaneously acknowledging God's good plans and purposes on display in those evil desires. Now, why do I share that? Because it's the lens through which we must interpret this verse here. We will soon see that David's census is sinful. And again, we'll get to that purpose or that reason why here in a moment. And we will see that this is a part of God's plans and purposes. But it does not follow that God coerced David into doing this. You look at David's response here. David doesn't think that his hands were tied that God made him do this. David acknowledges in verse 10 his own sin, that the census was his own idea. It was something that he wanted to do. Now that's why I say verse 1 is a behind-the-scenes look before the story even begins. The narrator wants us to be aware of something that is happening even if David isn't aware of it. And that's how we make sense of the parallel passage. If you are familiar with the book of 1 Chronicles, it tells this story as well, but it puts it very differently. This first verse, 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1 says this, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, what we just said about David's desire for a census and God's purposes are true, if, that, if that's true, which it is, then the same is true here. Just as God uses David's desire for a census to accomplish his purposes, he also uses Satan's desire to afflict the people of God to accomplish his purposes. This isn't the only time that we see this in the Bible either. Just think, as we've shared before, of Peter in Acts chapter 2. He's giving a sermon at Pentecost, and he's describing the crucifixion of Jesus, and he says it this way, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
So there in Acts chapter 2, we see, again, God's plans and human desires. The crowd cries out for Jesus' crucifixion because they want to put him to death. They are not coerced into that decision. They do exactly what they want to do. And yet at the same time, God remains completely and utterly in control and uses those evil desires to accomplish his purposes. And in the exact same way, God uses Satan's own desire to crucify Jesus to accomplish eternal purposes for salvation. That's explicit in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. So why does Judas betray Jesus? Multiple levels here. We could say, at the most basic level, Judas betrays Jesus for financial gain. He does it for 30 pieces of silver. John tells us in John chapter 12 of his greed. So on one level, the most basic level, Judas betrays Jesus because he wants to, because he gets something out of it. But we could also look at this in a different way. We could answer this question differently. That's because there's another level. Why does Judas betray Jesus? Well, according to Luke chapter 22, we see that Satan enters into him, that Satan's hatred of God, his hatred of God's people, his hatred of God's plans means he wants to put Jesus to death. And so he enters into Satan. So in addition to saying, why does Judas betray Jesus? Well, it's because he wanted to. We could also say, well, Judas betrayed Jesus because Satan entered into him out of a hatred of God. So there's multiple levels here. Both are true. And yet there's another level. There's another way we could answer this question. It's about the behind the scenes, behind all of these plan- things are, are, are the, is the, the sovereign plan and purpose of God that this was a part of God's plan from the very beginning. So you could ask the question, why did Judas betray Jesus? By saying, well, it was a part of God's plan. So take that reality and apply it to this passage this morning. There are three levels of what's taking place here. On the surface, David takes a census because of his own wrong desires. Behind that, David takes a census because of Satan's hatred for God influencing David toward that decision. It's a decision that David already wanted to make anyway. And behind it all, we have God's eternal purposes using Satan's own wicked desire, using David's own misplaced desires to do exactly what God intended. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we have to acknowledge that God never overrides a person's desires, making them do something they don't want to do, but instead, in his sovereignty, he uses their desires to accomplish exactly what he intends. Now, I spend all of that time this morning on this because it's crucial not just to drain the tension out of this text, but because this is how God is at work in the world today as well. So when you experience wrong 
or hurt or suffering at the hands of other people, we can have a confidence that God remains firmly seated on His throne, that He is completely and utterly in control. It might be a hard truth to hear that God remains in control in the midst of our suffering, but I will tell you, it is a far harder truth to think that He isn't in control, that He doesn't still reign, that He isn't on His throne. And I think that's our first passage, our first truth this morning as we even jump into this passage. It's simply this. God uses the evil desires of people to accomplish His good purposes. God will turn evil for good. When you are faced with a great evil, you can rest in the comfort of this text that God remains firmly in control, and more importantly, that he will accomplish good even in the midst of evil. And you might be saying, well, okay, I can understand that in the story of the crucifixion. Evil is turned for good, salvation for all people. I can understand that in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Evil is turned for good, saving many people. How is it when we look at this passage that God's purpose here is anger and judgment over sin? How is that a good purpose? As we look at this passage, we see that, yes, it does indeed talk of God's judgment on sin, but it's primarily about his mercy for us in spite of sin. Specifically, this text uses the judgment of God to reveal his mercy and to call people to return to him, and that's a good purpose. That's a really good purpose. Even if it's a hard one, it's good. Because God uses evil desires of people to accomplish this good purpose, calling people to return to him. Again, that's the behind the scenes. Before we even get into this first conversation between Joab and David, we are going to press on and we'll pick up our pace, don't worry. Picking up in verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Arar and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were about 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. Now, I mentioned that we are going to talk about why this census was so problematic. And if you're wondering that, you're not alone. God has commanded his people to take censuses in the past, and so there's not anything inherently wrong with that. But in the context of our passage, it's clear 
that this census is viewed negatively, that it is a bad thing. After all, we look at verse 10. David is going to repent of it, and from the outset, we see that Joab is against it. And if you remember anything from Joab over the last several months, if Joab is against it, well, maybe it is a really bad thing if even he is against it. But why? Well, the text isn't explicit. There's a few hints suggesting that this is a military census. So maybe it is rooted in David's arrogance. He wants to show off how big his army is. Or maybe it is a trust in earthly means. I need a bigger army to protect myself from the other nations instead of trusting in the Lord. Maybe it's a sinful desire for territory expansion. I need a bigger military so I can take over even more land of my neighbors. No, first and foremost, that David here is sending out the military to take this census. So there's a military bend already from the beginning. It's a military under Joab's control going out to take the census. Notice also that the number counted are the, quote, valiant men who drew the sword. Another military reference. Throughout the time, our time in First and Second Samuel, one thing that I've pointed out is that the word thousand in Hebrew has another translation. Instead of thousand, it could also be military company. And if that's the case here, instead of 800,000 and 500,000, we have 800 military companies from Israel, 500 military companies from Judah. And if that's the case, then we have even more evidence of a military focus on this census. So in other words, I think there's, there's plenty of, of reason to, to suspect that, that David's census here is focused on military strength. It might be because of pride and arrogance. It, it might be aggression toward other nations. It might be because he's trusting in the things of this world rather than trusting in God to take care of him. Whatever the case, God is not pleased with David's desire for a census because it shows a profound lack of commitment to the Lord and ultimately is an affront to God. Now, it's fascinating that this census takes almost 10 months to be completed. One wonders if this is actually a sign of reluctance from those who are taking the census. But at the end of the nearly 10 months, David receives word of this census, its results, and immediately he's cut to the heart. That begins the second section centering around a conversation between David and a prophet named Gad. But first, look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had, been, he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. It's fascinating to me that after 10 months, nearly 10 months, of David being completely unconcerned with his request for a military census, and yet, after those 10 months, in God's mercy... He hears the report of the army at his disposal, and he is immediately cut to the heart. And he responds with confession and repentance. And I don't want, you to, I don't want us to skip over the, the importance of this verse, because there is a great mercy in a guilty conscience. Do you realize all too often when we persist in sin, like David, for 10 months, for 10 months. All too often when we persist in sin, what it results in is a hard heart, an unfeeling heart. 
a heart that is unreceptive to the prompting of the Spirit. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. The implication is, if you harden your hearts today, you might not hear Him tomorrow. We see here an incredible mercy that God has for David and giving him a guilty conscience. And yet at the same time, there's, there's another side of this. It's not just a mercy to have a guilty conscience, but it's also a mercy to, to respond in the right way to that guilty conscience. Because a guilty conscience can be a good thing, at least compared to this calloused heart that doesn't care anything about the things of God. It's not guaranteed that it will be a good thing. Because many times when we have a guilty conscience, it can lead us to condemnation. Rather than leading us to turn back to God, relying on his mercy, relying on his grace, sometimes a guilty conscience will lead us to run away from him. To think, I am not good enough for grace and mercy. That's for other people who haven't screwed up as much as me. God's mercy is a good thing, but it's too good for me. Many times a guilty conscience can lead to condemnation, and we can feel like we have no place in God's family, and because we've offended him, he wants nothing to do with us, and so we just wallow in condemnation and don't run to our good God. Verse 10 tells us not to fall into that trap. Don't fall into that trap. Follow instead the example of David here. He is cut to the heart over his sin. He has a guilty conscience over what he has done, and yet he runs to the mercy of God. And we might say, well, why? It's because he knows God. He knows that God is overflowing in mercy. David doesn't believe the lie that says, I've screwed up. I have to prove myself to God first. I have to clean myself up before I come to him and cry out to mercy. No, his response here is it's extremely simple. It's hard, but it's simple. When he becomes aware of his sin, he runs to God, confesses his sin, and asks for mercy. There's no ands, there's no ifs, there's no more buts. David grasps God's mercy in a way that I long for each and every one of us to experience and know that God does not cast out. He welcomes in. And it's in that mercy that God actually speaks to David still. He sends a prophet named Gad to speak to David. Verse 11 And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it for you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. Now, if we are reading this for the first time, or if we're trying to read it with new eyes, we are probably surprised by David's word, or excuse me, Gad's words here. 
After all, when we think of the mercy from God, we might think of forgiveness and pardon. And so when we see that Gad approaches David, gives him three options, we're probably not expecting three different options for judgment. Of course, we have to remember verse 1. We were given the behind the scenes. This all started with God's displeasure over Israel's sin. So while God gladly forgives David when he repents, when he comes to him, there will still be fallout primarily because God has plans on addressing the sin of his people Israel. And so God gives David three options concerning judgment for sin. And I'll be the first to say these are impossible options. Can you imagine being in David's position here? How could you possibly hope to decide? Again, I, I think David is, is, or God is teaching David something here. He's teaching him about the awfulness of sin in that moment, but even more than that, he's teaching David of his inability to deal with the consequences of sin among God's people. David can't take away the punishment for the coming sin. And so David, in the end, he chooses the shortest and yet the most severe of the options. He's again running to the mercy of God. He roots his reasoning in the mercy of God. Three years of famine would have left the people of Israel exposed to extortion from other nations. Three months of defeat and battle would have potentially left them open to invasion. And so David opts for what is likely a very severe bubonic plague. That's what we see picking up in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. It's not hard to see the connection here between David's census, stretching from Dan to Beersheba, which is just a way of saying from the furthest north to the furthest south, and God's judgment from Dan to Beersheba, stretching from the furthest north to the furthest south. And yet we see that the angel draws near to Jerusalem and yet God in his mercy tells the angel to cease. Did you catch the, the wording here of this appointed time in verse 15? What I find to be amazing is that the three days of judgment that God had set out, that God had asked David about, God actually cuts it short. He cuts short. Even in his judgment, God reveals unbelievable mercy for rebellious people and his disobedient king. I want you to imagine being David in this moment. You're in Jerusalem. You know that there is judgment coming. You're not aware of God's plans from verse 1. You're not aware of the sin of the people of Israel. And you think that this pestilence that is wiping out people is solely because of your sin. And, and your sin does have a part to play in this. And you see the angel of the Lord coming to Jerusalem, and that's a terrible sight. And what are you going to do? David cries out for mercy. He asks God to spare his people. He might be wrong in assuming that his people have done nothing wrong. Remember verse 1. But David's heart is clear. He is their shepherd. 
and he longs to bear the punishment to spare his sheep. You notice there's, there's just one problem here? David can't. David is well-intentioned in his desire to bear the punishment of his people as their good shepherd, but he can't do it. David has his own sin to deal with. He can't take care of the sin of other people. He needs mercy himself. How can he be the vessel through which God will bring mercy to others? And I think that's the message of this section, this tension here that we are meant to experience as we see the horrifying effects of sin. It's simply this, David is wholly inadequate to save his people from the consequences of sin. David is completely inadequate to save people from sin. David might want to. He may long to do that. He pleads to God so that he could do just that, but he can't. He might have a heart of a good shepherd, but he is not the good shepherd. David is a good king, but he is not good enough. He wants to shield people from their sin, from the effects of sin, but he is wholly inadequate to do that. And as we come to the end of this second section, we see that tension, this longing, that this passage is is stirring within us of someone or something to make things right. We might say, well, how exactly will things be made right? That's what we see in the final section, centering on a conversation between David and a man named Arauna. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. I do enjoy that David is a completely different person here than he was at the beginning of the story because verse 10 is this defining moment where he comes back to his senses. God speaks, David listens. That's the end of the story now. God speaks, David listens. So he travels to the site of where the angel of the Lord has stayed his hand and it's on a farm just outside of Jerusalem. Significantly, Arauna, the owner of this land, is a Jebusite. He's a Canaanite one of the previous citizens of Jerusalem. Clearly, he is a respected citizen, this respected Canaanite. Verse 20. And when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arauna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arauna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arauna gives to the king. And Arauna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arauna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David approaches Arauna with a request to buy the land for a sacrifice. Instead, Arauna offers him the materials for a sacrifice, the oxen and the wood, free of charge, but doesn't offer the land. And David refuses. He acknowledges or he understands that the heart that God desires 
when it comes to worship, means that it has to cost us something. When it comes to worship, external acts mean nothing if there's not a heart that aligns with those actions. So when David is going to make a sacrifice, the very name implies that it will involve sacrifice on David's part. For David to offer worship using around us things would not be worship at all. And I think that's the, the, the heart of this third conversation here. Worship is a matter of the heart. It's not external actions. Worship to God is a matter of the heart, not just the things that you do. Worship, for it to truly be worship, it has to involve the heart. It's not just going through the motions, whether that's going to church, whether that's singing songs, reading your Bible, praying, giving, you name it. If your heart is not in it, then this passage says that it all amounts to nothing. Worship is a matter of the heart. It's not external actions. Now, that's not to say that external actions aren't important. God cares deeply about how he is worshiped. Just read the book of Leviticus and you'll see. God cares deeply about how he is worshiped. But for it to actually be worship, it has to involve the heart. And David understands that and he persists in his pursuit of the land so that he can truly worship God. And this bartering continues between the two of them. David ends up purchasing the land from Araunah. The chapter and the book end with verse 25, David offering a sacrifice on the altar and the plague coming to an end. Notice verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. It's, a, it's an odd way to end this book, isn't it? It's an odd way. We're not even given the, the end. It's just David worshipped. David worshipped and God responded. And we might ask, is there something that we're missing here? Well, the answer is actually given a couple books later in Second Chronicles. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, or another name for Araunah, the Jebusite. So this site, where David worships God and God shows his great mercy for his people, is one day soon going to be the holiest site in Israelite religion. The temple symbolizes God's presence with his people, his commitment to his people, how his people can enter into his presence. And for centuries, sacrifices will be offered day after day, crying out for the mercy of God at this very site. So when we consider how First and Second Samuel end, it ends with this powerful foreshadowing of the mercy of God, of what God is doing to, to enact his promises, his presence with his people. And we're left with an altar on a farm on the outside of Jerusalem, but with an assurance that something better is coming. And maybe the irony of the story of the Bible is, is that the temple itself is not the, the something better. It's a step in the right direction, but it's not the destination. Because the, the temple, as good as it is, as a sign of mercy from God, it, it wasn't enough. Instead, mercy is found on a different hill outside of Jerusalem, a hill called 
Golgotha, where the mercy of God is poured out for all humanity in the death of Jesus on the cross. And as I consider this story, one of the most powerful parts of David's longing to save his people from the consequences of sin is his sheer inability to do so. But we have a better king. We have a better king who can extend mercy to us. That's the heart of this passage. Our hope is found in mercy from our better king, the Lord Jesus. You know, as David so regularly does throughout 2 Samuel, he points us to Jesus, not just in how he positively portrays God's king, but also in the ways that he falls short. And as we come to an end of 2 Samuel, we are reminded of the great mercy that is given to us in our better king, not in the temple built on Araunah's threshing floor, but in the true temple, the Lord Jesus, where the fullness of God dwelt bodily. Mercy is on display in this passage, mercy that points us to the cross. As we began this morning, I mentioned that this chapter is meant to leave us with a lasting impression of this book, and that lasting impression is probably unsurprising to you if you notice the sermon series title. It's just our need for a better king. It's a refrain that we have repeated over and over and over. The story of David, this complex character, points us to our need for mercy from our better king. This past week, I read a, a description of David that I found really appropriate. It was by Eugene Peterson. He said this, David does not always obey God, but he always deals with God. And I love that quote because as we have seen, David is far from perfect. Far from perfect. His life is filled with examples where he doesn't obey God, but at the end of the day, he always exposes his life with faults and failings to God. He deals with God, not just in a, like a, let's get this over with sense, but it is an acknowledgement that his entire life is answerable to God and he is in desperate need for God's mercy. And that's a good place to end. That's a good place to end this book. David in First and Second Samuel gives us great hope of the type of person that God welcomes into his family. Not perfect people, but people who need mercy and run to God, their better king, for that mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy that is ours in Jesus. What a gift. Help us to cling to that mercy. cling to what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.